0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with Liz Brown, author of the book Twilight Man, Love and Ruin in the Shadows of Hollywood and the Clark Empire. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So right off the bat, let's talk about who you are before we dive into the main characters of this nonfiction book. How did you come to find and write about this story?
1: I came to it in a very roundabout way through my grandmother i had been living in new york it was i was in my early 30s and i was it was a painful time i was semi estranged from my family i'd come out and told them i was gay my parents had not responded well to that and so there was this kind of period of an impasse and my grandmother who i'd been close with passed away she was 96 And I went back to her funeral in San Francisco and it was fraught because there was grief, but there was also this other sort of, as I said, impasse in the family. And I was looking through her dresser sort of for some kind of heirloom or talisman or some kind of object that would make me feel connected to her. And I found this rather alluring black sepia portrait of a very handsome young man in a kind of silent film star style. The photograph was signed to her from Harrison Post, and I just found him completely alluring and took him home to Brooklyn, and no one in my family knew who he was, but it made me think my grandmother had this whole other personality of, you know, I thought he must have been a movie star. And... I would look for information about him online and find nothing. And then separately, a few years later, I started researching her uncle, who I had heard lots of some murky rumors about that he was very wealthy, that he came from this copper mining family, that he was gay. And, of course, I was very interested in that. And I knew this family was there, – there was scandal attached to this, to this uncle. His name was Will Clark. That's that's all I knew. And he had been married to her aunt. So I started researching him and came across a kind of sensational biography written in the 40s about Will Clark and the Clark family of Montana, which was a rock, copper baron family, essentially, and discovered in the process of reading this tell-all from the 40s, that Harrison Post, according to the author, had been Will Clark's, quote,
0: perverted disciple. It's an interesting description for a relationship,
1: for certain. (laughs) Yes. So it was just an amazing coincidence or serendipity or something that I had the instinct to salvage this photograph of this man no one knew. And would years later learn that he had been the secret lover of my great-granduncle.
0: So we have the Copper Barons in Montana. We have Hollywood. We have you in New York. There are a lot of different locations in this book that you need uh, to go to, to describe, to talk about what the family was doing at different points. Was it more complicated to research this book, given that kind of the only published work appeared to be this sensational 1940s tell-all. How did you do your research into the lives of Harrison Post and Will Clark?
1: Yes, it, it was incredibly complicated. That book, which, which by William Mangum, it's called The Clarks, An American Phenomenon, is a questionable document, a fascinating one, but also problematic. And I had a couple big breakthroughs. One was I met a woman who had Harrison's journals and scrapbooks, and this was thanks to the Clark Library, which is here in Los Angeles. It's part of UCLA now, but Will Clark founded it. And an archivist there connected me with a woman in the Bay Area who was connected to a relative of Harrison's. There are always these circuitous, tangential connections in this story That was one major breakthrough. The other was here in L.A. in the Hall of Archives downtown, this ream of papers that was the court case. So one of the really sensational things about Harrison's story that I learned was that when Will Clark died, this secret lover, Harrison, had been living a life as a kind of Hollywood socialite. But once the older wealthy man died, Harrison's sister had him, Harrison, declared incompetent. That case file of his, of him being declared incompetent, she being appointed the guardian, was a huge treasure trove of details and evidence, in a way, of that aspect of the story.
0: And let's pause and talk about that a little, because... You know, Will Clark, who was older than Harrison Post, he wanted to provide for Harrison after he was gone. He knew that this was a possibility. Uh, In fact, he had attempted to adopt Harrison formally, which was a way that some gay couples attempted to make sure that estates couldn't be taken from their loved ones by the state or by family. And that was unsuccessful. So he really did think pretty hard about this, and he built a trust that he expected to keep Harrison in comfort for hopefully the rest of his life. Was this particularly poignant when you think about how many other couples, usually of lesser means, but were trying to provide for each other after their deaths, but the law was not constructed in a way that allowed them to do that easily?
1: Yes. Adoption was something that some gay couples were able to successfully do, but... In Will and Harrison's case, they were not. Harrison was considered, of had attained his majority, I think was the language that would have been used. And that was in 1919 or 1920 when they were trying to have him adopted. You know, there was no other way for their union to be recognized and no other way for Will. I mean, Will did stipulate in his will that Harrison should receive would, would receive this trust. His uh, Harrison's sister was was very successful though in convincing the courts that it should be dissolved and liquidated so she could supposedly better administrate it. Which was what Will had been trying to protect Harrison from. And in a way there's something there's something very poignant about all those efforts Will went to, into being completely dismissed, there's also an irony in that Will had been trying to make Harrison his, his ward, essentially, and by having him declared incompetent, Harrison's sister succeeded in making Harrison her ward. So the court would never recognize Will and Harrison's relationship, but it recognized his sister's dominion over him, essentially.
0: It's difficult for me to say this without anger, but let's discuss the sister. (laughs) Gladys, whose buried name at the time was Crooks, which is a detail that any Hollywood writer would come back to you if you were attempting a screenplay and say, excuse me, little too on the nose, but this is real life, so it's stranger. Gladys Crooks, let's talk about this woman, her background, uh, and a little bit about how she and Harrison grew up.
1: Sure. I, compared to Will Clark's childhood, which he was born in Montana, but he was raised and tutored in Paris and in Dresden. And he supposedly spoke French before he spoke English and had this incredibly coddled life of servants and and luxury travel. Harrison was the son of a itinerant clothing salesman who... Appears to have been a, a very charming but also very erratic alcoholic. And he was he was sort of dragged around behind his father as his father lost jobs, took new jobs. And there were five children in the Harrison family. Harrison's original name was Albert Weiss Harrison. He would later change his name to Harrison Post, but his sister Gladys was one of the the five children. There were three others. There's some question as to whether they all share the same parents. His parents' marriage seems to have been very turbulent and short-lived, but there were five children who came from that in a in a very short time span. And Gladys and Harrison were the one—Harrison stayed in touch with Gladys of, out of all of them. And when he came into this fortune through his older lover, she suddenly—she'd been living in Chicago, and she suddenly showed up in, in Los Angeles. And he took her in and introduced her to all his movie star friends.
0: And she was introducing herself as a countess at that time. I believe. Yes, yeah. is the,
1: yes. Sometimes she called herself Countess Barbieri. Her sure. first husband had he had not been a count, but that didn't matter. <laughs> and then she remarried. Uh, that marriage ended, and then she remarried a car salesman from Toledo
0: named Charles Crooks. And just an aside, Liz, would you buy a car from a car <laughs> salesman named Crooks? No, or just I you would know. Not. We can we can tell that name changes were possible here. Harrison did it himself. <laughs> but that really was quite tragic, the fact that this was the sibling he felt closest to. And after Will died, Harrison was, it does seem that Harrison was ill. It, it's not 100% clear how much of it could have been a mental illness, how mm-hmm. much of it was a lingering physical illness, apparently it had a very um, dangerous bout of food poisoning at some point that... Took him more than a year to recover from. But she swoops in. And from this point, you had kind of a wealth of documents. And many of them were these receipts that she was presenting to the court to be reimbursed from. And those, too, were so poignant. I mean, I think that many people have now heard about conservatorships because of Britney Spears' experience being in the news. So has that made it a little easier to explain to people what Harrison was going through when you're talking about your book? Yes,
1: it has. The connections with the Britney Spears case are, are uncanny. It's the exact same court, Superior Court of Los Angeles, that had had in this it's, we're still in the present tense of course with Britney, but has someone declared incompetent and then hands over that very substantial estate to a family member who claims to have their best interests at heart, but appears actually to be draining their estate for their own purposes.
0: Now, Harrison was about 20, 21 years old, correct? When you met Will Clark. How old was Clark at the time?
1: Will Clark was about 42. There was a 20
0: year, about a 20 year age difference. But we're not talking about Will Clark's death immediately. They were together for how many years? 15 years. They spent 15 years together. So Harrison had gone from being a very young adult um, experiencing privations to a very different kind of life. Could you read a little passage of your book that talks about what Harrison's life would have been like or, or what Harrison experienced? Sure, I can read. This is
1: a section, the two men met in San Francisco where Harrison was a shop clerk in 1919, and very quickly after, Harrison joins Will Clark in Los Angeles where Will Clark has just launched the Los Angeles Philharmonic. He single-handedly founded it. He was very instrumental in a lot of early L.A. culture, including some very important funding to the Hollywood Bowl. And so that is the world Harrison is stepping into as the sort of consort of this incredibly wealthy man. And I'll read a section. This, ta- this is, a, you know, maybe about a year after Harrison's arrived in L.A. Harrison went to the races. He went shopping. He went to parties. He threw parties. He traveled in chauffeured cars. He gave orders to servants. He swanned about town delivering rare editions of Chaucer to other handsome young men. He sat for his portrait. Dilettante comes from the Latin delictare, to delight, but we finish it off as if it's French, the best language for contempt, the one that gives us manque and flaneur, people we can't easily categorize, people without obvious purpose. These are words that allow us to purse our lips, ironic, dismissive, the better not to take these people, whomever, whatever they are, seriously. An unfixed man, Harrison Post strains our usual terms, and so we turn to other languages, strange words to make a strange person even stranger. And in doing so, we admit the truth, that it's impossible to be precise about people, Because being a person is not a precise thing to be. A man exists whether or not the language exists to identify him. And even if he cannot be named, he can still be seen. And he can still be loved. Will had a word for Harrison. Copain. He inscribed it on a photograph of himself at the races. Cigar clenched in his teeth. Stopwatch in hand. Wearing a fedora. Taken from below. The picture makes Will seem a powerful masculine figure, barrel-chested and taller than he was. In French, copain can mean buddy or pal, but it's often used to signal romantic attachment, a more adult expression than petit ami. The term comes from compagnon, which, along with the Spanish compañero, Italian compagno, and English companion, derives from Latin, come and panis meaning, with whom one eats bread. The words we use for with whom one shares a bed are never so direct. Instead, they're burdened with social norms and contractual obligations, like wife and husband, veiled in opaque business speak, partner, or recast from platonic terms and yoked to gender as with boyfriend and girlfriend. Lover at least draws on a feeling, but none of these words possesses the clarity of the bond established through sharing one of the most elemental acts in life with another person. They were happy in Rome. They were happy in Venice. They were happy in Paris. They were happy on ocean liners, in staterooms, in private
0: cars, in hotel suites, in bookstores. Well, I know that uh, so many of my listeners are lovers of words. And so I think they'll enjoy that discussion about, about words and what we choose to use for people. Now, a couple of times in our discussion, you've referred to Harrison as Will's secret lover, but there are secrets and then there are secrets. It wasn't as if Harrison secluded himself in, in any way, really, you know, he was out and about, he had many Hollywood friends, stars whose names you would know, when we say that this relationship was secret, how secret was it? Who did know that they were together and for 15 years?
1: Yes, this was a secret very much in plain sight. They didn't live together. Harrison lived in a villa across the street from Will Clark's own compound in West Adams. They traveled together, but they often traveled in an entourage with two or three other people. So you would never quite pin them Together, they went to the L.A. Phil together. They belonged to the L.A. Athletic Club together. Will sort of ushered Harrison in very publicly into this elite world in Los Angeles, but he also then compartmentalized his life. He would spend three months out of the year in Montana hosting family, friends, Montana associates. And Harrison would have his own separate life as well. He, at one point, had a ranch in the Palisades and he was sort of set himself apart as a country gentleman who hosted writing parties. And that was a, a somewhat separate life from Will. But it was the kind of thing that you could see. You didn't have to look hard to see the nature of their relationship, that it had this romantic element to it. They, they hosted parties together but the term that will used and or that was often used to describe harrison or to explain his relationship to will was that he was will's secretary which he did no such administrative functions for will but that was <laughs> that was the word they used to explain why this young
0: man was always with will clark harrison didn't do a whole lot of filing it doesn't no. seem <laughs>
1: You know. He did early on in their relationship, he was involved with indexing catalogs in Will's library, and he did, he did assist in some respects, but I think he was more ornamental. And had he been a woman, no one would have thought anything of that. You, you know that wouldn't it would have been sort of remarkable if Will's wife had been helping him index catalogs and books. But
0: uh, there were people who looked askance. I'm sitting here speaking to you as the great granddaughter of a man who had a cigar company in Chicago, and he married his secretary. So, you know, it was that kind of relationship, but it couldn't have that kind of uh, societal ending.
1: Yes, I think Harrison's Harrison. If you understand it through that lens of yes, someone who marries their secretary, or someone that it it perfect it makes perfect sense, or or we have. I don't know. If that makes perfect sense, but we certainly have an understanding of those relationships and accept them for the most part.
0: Mm-hmm. And they did not have equal societal power. No. Uh, so there was there was that imbalance. We've talked a lot about Will and about Harrison, but I, I want to get to some other things in your book because you go much deeper into the Clark Empire and the families that both these men came from. Let's talk about the Clarks a little bit. Uh, Now, this gets confusing because there are three Will Clarks. Yes. um, So, (laughs) but the eldest who became the Copper Baron, such an incredible figure and incredible in that sometimes cannot be believed the amount of money that he spent in order to be elected a senator, for example. Yes. Just some really great political details. And could you talk a little bit about what it was like to research Montana political history during this period, the Gilded Age kind of shenaniganery that was going on?
1: Oh, my. Yes. It's, I mean, if you look at what is happening in terms of voter suppression efforts and other shenanigans, I mean, Montana is a great case study for what is unfolding now in terms of how ruthlessly politicians or sort of the people pulling the strings of politicians behaved in order to control who was elected. Montana was just a cesspool of corruption before it was even admitted to the union. And William A. Clark, William Andrews Clark Sr., became Senator Clark in 1901. It was his fourth attempt to buy his way into the Senate. And twice he hadn't succeeded at the polls. A third time he had, but it was so flagrant, the bribery, that he um, was being investigated when he resigned, so he resigned. And the fourth time, I think he was just strategic enough to bribe the right people. So that's Senator Clark. He's why we have the 17th Amendment, because he so abused <laughs> the electoral system that the amendment was created to to make sure that senators were elected by popular vote, not appointed or elected by state legislators. He owned pretty much half of the copper reserves in America as America was experiencing the electric, the dawn of the electrical age. So he both ran a lot of things behind the scenes, but was an incredibly vain man who desperately wanted a kind of title. Basically, I mean, he had no interest in real governing, but he um, he wanted the title, he wanted the pomp of a of a, being a elected official. So that's Senator Clark. Will Clark was his son. There were four children in that fa- who lived to adulthood in that family. And then Senator Clark remarried after his first wife died to his teenage ward, Anna Lachapelle, who'd been the daughter of a woman who ran a boarding house in Butte, Montana. And Anna had two daughters, Andre, who died at seventeen, and huguette who a lot of people or you you get who a lot of people may know through a book called Empty Mansions by Bill Dedman.
0: Yeah, she had her own strange experience in her senior years we will say didn't seem super clear whether she had a lot of agency or whether the people around her were controlling her and the access she had or others had to her money so that that would be its own that would be its yes. own whole episode these yes. are some very tangled family family tales We also could mention that uh, Will himself had a Will Clark, his son. He was married twice. And your grandmother, her aunt, was one of those wives. Is that correct?
1: Yes. She was the second wife. His first wife, Mabel, died about a month after childbirth to the third Will Clark. And then Will remarried about four or five years later to Alice, McManus, who was my grandmother's aunt, and who my grandmother was named for, and they were together. Will and Alice were together for about ten years, and then she died of cancer in nineteen eighteen. And um, and my grandmother was something of a surrogate daughter for them a bit. Uh, they didn't have a child of their own, and they kind of lumped her, or they brought her along with the boy Will Clark, the third, who was often called Tertius. So my grandmother and, and Tertius were kind of the children of Will Will and Alice although they didn't have children of their
0: own. So when I was trying to explain this book to a few people after I had read it it was difficult to really get across the the wide scope because you start in the you know teens 20s in Hollywood and you have the stardom you have the LA Philharmonic Orchestra, starting up, you move into a very dark period in Harrison's life in the 30s after Will has died and he's been put in a conservatorship under his sister. I don't know if we stated this plainly earlier in our discussion, but she and her husband take everything, essentially. It it didn't come across like Harrison was left with much of all at all. And all of his staff were dismissed. He was kept in isolation. His books were sold. His art was sold. And they didn't let him go until there was nothing left. Did I kind of summarize that correctly?
1: That's pretty close to it. They they really liquidated as much as they could get their hands on, including the trust. And once they had pretty much gone through most of his assets they decided he was competent and they had him they had him returned to competency or had him declared competent again that's where the story takes another un, sort of unimaginable swerve which is that harrison flees his sister essentially in 1938 with his male nurse Oscar Trigestad for Oscar's hometown in Norway a little delightful idyllic little town on on the fio- on a fjord which should be a perfect spot to recuperate from
0: being held captive and traumatized sure absolutely and you'd think oh well now I'm fleeing to safety yep in 1938 To Norway. Exactly. Whoops. Exactly. And, you know, Harrison was Jewish.
1: He did not identify as Jewish, but his parents were. And that is definitely something that many of the people in Will's life who disapproved of the relationship, not only because it was a same-sex relationship, but because Harrison had Jewish ancestry um, and was therefore considered this outsider, So he's a gay Jewish man who decides to find refuge in
0: Norway in 1938. Yes, and you know I'm I'm not going to go into everything that he went through, but he found himself in several concentration camps. Yeah, and you know I will I will. This seems weird to say about a real human being who lived a life, but I will spoil the story and say he did come out of the camps and he survived World War II. And made a return to Hollywood, the Hollywood area, but I'll kind of leave it up to readers to discover the full end of his tale. But this takes me to his diaries, because this is a time period in which you had access to Harrison's own thoughts. Can you talk about what it was like to read his journals, what kind of a writer or journalist he was, and you know, did it change your view of him or influence the way you thought about him in his life?
1: Yes, I found his diaries through, as I mentioned, a relative of his in the Bay Area. And the ones she had were from 1941 through the end of his life and into the mid-1940s. They're really extraordinary. It's extraordinary just to step into someone else's interior, essentially, but also someone living through this incredible history, this incredible
0: sweep of history. So the journals, they're really extraordinary. So to me, one of the most interesting things when I read some of the passages you included or the way you described the way he wrote about his own life and himself, and of course he's writing about this for himself, but there were areas where what he avoided might tell you more than if he had described everything that happened to him. For example, the way he talked or didn't talk about his sister in these diaries was so striking because it really seemed to convey the trauma that he had lived through uh, during during that period.
1: Yes, he has one entry in which he writes her name and then he scratches it out and then he or he writes just simply g her name was gladys and he writes simply that first initial and then scratches that out can't bear to even have it on the page he would not write charles crooks name her husband's name sometimes if he did refer to the crooks it was always in quotes but he Would never put Charles's name in there. And I, which led me to believe that he had experienced great harm and trauma at that man's hands and just simply did not want to name it.
0: Yeah, there's a lot that you have to read into the absence of evidence, and not just with the journal, but with, you know, Will's life. I don't want to leave anyone, and you didn't leave anyone, with the idea that this is a simple love story or that these were not very complex human beings. There were some unsavory things that happened with the Clark family, with Mm -hmm. Will Clark. What was it like to discover some of those details and deciding what to share, what not to share, what you can know and can't know about what goes on behind closed doors?
1: I made the decision to trust the reader. And I thought I will present as much information as I can, as care as carefully as I can, and I will provide as much, I will provide all the source material, but I, I wanted to synthesize it. I didn't want to just dump a load of, of factual data or historical data, but I did put as much information out there to, to, especially in the case of the relationship you're describing between Will Clark and his housekeeper's son, which to some eyes could be a man who's lost his son. Uh, Tertius had died in 32. A man who's lost his son looking for a replacement child and kind of channeling that paternal love towards someone new. You could also look at it as an incredibly wealthy man exploiting the child of his servant. And we just simply will not know. Too much time has passed. None of the people are still alive. And I felt the best I could do was present, as, present all the information I had and give you those two possibilities. And imagine perhaps there's also, it's a spectrum of possibility between them. So I had a lot of interesting conversations with other relatives connected to this story who, you know, I I might lean toward a darker view of that relationship. Some of them take a very benevolent view. So I feel like that is up to the reader to draw their own conclusion. Sure.
0: And finally, I'd like to talk to you about the title of the book and why you chose it and Again, you know, we've been talking a while, so I'll remind my listeners. The title of this book is Twilight Man, Love and Ruin in the Shadows of Hollywood and the Clark Empire. Who is the Twilight Man? Why did you pick Twilight Man as the title? So Twilight
1: Man was a term used for gay men. I don't think it was used very long. And probably in the 1930s, there was a kind of Pulp Fiction novel called Twilight Man, the story of a homosexual. Uh, that came out, I think, in 31. And I came across the term when I was reading the scandalous tell-all about the Clark family, written in 1941, in which it referred to Harrison as the type known as a twilight man. And I'd never come across that expression before. And that was my introduction to this concept of gay men being described as kind of living in, in the shadows, living in this in-between type of world, half seen, half invisible. And it really suited, certainly suits Harrison, who kind of is in-between, in-between wealth and destitution, in-between being of the servant class and being of the elite class. Uh, so I, I found it a very fitting
0: encapsulation on a lot of levels. So you first met Harrison as a photo that you put on your wall. Is he still on your wall? He's
1: on top of a bookshelf.
0: (laughs) Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If my listeners are interested in picking up Twilight Man or finding out more about your work or what you're going to be up to next, where should they go? They should go to my website, which is lizbrown.la. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.